That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. We had 15 songs that we thought were great. And with this album, we really wanted to get back to our roots in the sense that over 15 years or whatever, you kind of start to collect excess baggage. If you're going on a long voyage, you know, your luggage gets full and you add another piece of luggage. Sooner or later, you look and you go, you know, there's a lot of stuff here we don't need. And we figured, let's go into the studio. Let's cut this album in a demo studio. Let's go somewhere where nobody's going to be telling us Oh, you're the greatest, while they're getting paid to tell you that you're the greatest. And um, no receptionist, nobody doing anything for us, us doing everything ourselves. Let's go in and make a, a balls-to-the-wall guitar rock and roll album. The same kind of stuff that we started out doing, the same kind of stuff we want to continue doing. Uh, is this going to be a show that's going to attract both your new fans and your old fans? I think everybody's going to want to see this. It's, um, it's spectacle. I mean, it's everything that KISS has always been known for. Other bands can go out with the same kind of show, but none of them can be KISS, and we just figured we'd go out and do the thing the way it's supposed to be done. You're listening to the Cobras and Fire Podcast. This week we break the record, the 1989 Kiss album, Hot in the Shade. All that All that beauty. But you never show your face. I'm gonna make my way to you. Not that you don't Cobras and Fire. I'm your host, LC, and I am joined, as always, with the hot mess, Baco. How are you, sir? I am a hot mess in the shade of my basement. Uh, I don't know. We, we got the video, so you can kind of see my hair is getting a little bit too long. I uh, I can't wait for barbershops to reopen, let's put it that way. And I'm sure the rest of the country feels too, that way, too. Understood. Yes. Uh, I actually went to the Clippers, and it's, it's, it's a little, little too tight right now. <laughs> Your lettuce is too hence, tight, hence, huh? Hence, 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 hence the throw on the hat. But today, I think it's time to, to time travel and get away from the time of face masks and go back to a time when Kiss was unmasked. And that is 1989. What do you think of that transition? Is that cheesy enough? Yeah, that's pretty cheesy. I like it. Um, okay, cool. 
All right, so today we're doing a concept we've, we've been tossing around for a couple years. We're going to take the bloated mess of Hot in the Shade and strip it down to a perfectly sequenced, smooth, tight 10-track album. Uh, you have your 10, and I have my 10, and as we go through, we're going to kind of expose what each other has, right? Pretty much. I mean, I, I, I think that and we're also re- renaming the album Hotter Than Shade. Yes? Mm. Uh, no, no, no. That was uh, not discussed. Hot, hot Throwing Shade? <laughs> Hotter in the shade? How about just throwing shade? Throwing like, shade. Yeah. I like it. Let's do yeah, that. There then. we go. So yeah, this All is right. uh, hot in the shade redux. Throwing shade. <laughs> okay. A diamond really is just a piece of coal, but once you you shape it and everything, it turns into a glorious uh, uh, something that's priceless. And you that's what we're going to do it. today. You got to squish you it do. down. There's a lot. There's a lot of. Mm-hmm. There's a lot. You got to make it tighter. Less. You have to. You have to polish it. Things like that. And, and exactly, diamonds. They're not huge. There's just enough, and they're beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I. I think that this is an unpolished diamond. This album, where I think it gets a lot of shit. And I think through going through this today, you're going to find that there are some well-written songs on here. And it may be because of the fact that they put as much time into the actual production of the album they actually leveled it and i think they threw a couple overdubs on there just like we do every episode mm-hmm. that maybe that is part of the, the problem too but we're gonna get into all of that but yes at the end of this you're gonna have two perfectly sequenced album uh, an album that stands in the kiss catalog i'm okay with the album as it is i don't really don't need to strip it down i will say as someone who enjoys listening to something as an album it does need that. It does need that kind of more tighter beginning, ending. When I listen to this, it's a lot like listening to like smashes and thrashes and hits. It just kind of drones on. But the, as far as the material on here, there really isn't anything that I, other than maybe read my body, but we'll get into all that. Um, yeah. I, Not I, for me. I, Not for me. But, uh, you know, whatever. For the sake of uh, podcasting and um, and also, you know, I do think it is an improvement. I listened to to my retracking three times yesterday and uh, spot on, it's perfect. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I do think if you're a fan of this concept, then because we like to promote ourselves, go check out Purge Your Illusion and also check out The Purge of 1978, uh, where we take all the Kiss albums and uh, the solo albums and make one one awesome, incredible album as well. Correct. But uh, you you have a little more pain uh, with this process than I do. I enjoy it. I love The Purge. Well, you know, because in the back of my mind, it's like I'm getting rid of this forever, and it's just going to be a... A, a, a shitty fucking demo in the Gene Simmons vault. <laughs> uh, well, let's get into some of the details of the album. Is that all right? Absolutely. Let's go. It was released October 17th, 1989. It was recorded at a some dump that nobody uses called The Fortress in Hollywood, California. Uh, it comes in at, a, a, I think, a fairly brisk 58 and th- minutes and 39 seconds when you consider there's 15 fucking songs on here. Sure. And uh, unfortunately produced by Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. Released on Mercury Records locally here. Uh, I think, uh, what is Vertigo the the rest of the world? Something like that. Ugh. I don't know. Had three music videos, Rise to It. Um, the, the, in order, it went Hide Your Heart, Forever, and Rise to It, if I recall. Yep. And, of course, the Rise to It video, particularly notable for Gene and Paul uh, shoving their bodies into <laughs> their 1970s <laughs> outfits of different eras and, uh, and having, I don't know, maybe, maybe a guy that was the, the grip on there pretend he was playing drumsticks or something like that, right? Oh, right, yeah. 
All right. So it peaked in the U.S. at number 29. Uh, respectable for the time, uh, definitely. Uh, it went gold in the United States and platinum in Canada, which is 100,000 units in Canada, which means every Canadian citizen bought this record. <laughs> so as far as uh, charting on the Billboard Hot 100, Hide Your Heart peaked at number 66. Forever peaked at number eight, their first top 10 single since uh, I think uh, I Was Made for Loving You. And Rise to It uh, just was a scorcher tearing its way to number 81. So, uh, yeah. Kiss never really a charting band, though. I mean, well, yeah, but that, and, and quick comment on that. I find that pretty surprising that it only went gold when it had their biggest single. Uh, you know, my, my math says that it should have gone platinum because. Uh, the, the research you know I, mean? I did, I couldn't find an official number, but uh, in the Eric Carr book, I think Larry Mazur said it. It just uh, was right around nine hundred thousand is where it left off. Okay, so it was it, got so it was close. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. But you know, it's still got Canadian platinum, eh? Sure, um, sure. Well, what did you think of the album cover? Well, there's two things that that Kiss actually did that was innovative, and not that many bands were doing the whole sixty minute max out the CD length at this point. That that came more in the nineties, mm. so that was innovative. And the fact that they were the first rock band to use what didn't even exist yet either, which is the cool emoji on the on the cover. Which, uh, you know, a dude with sunglasses. This time, Leon Sphinx. Uh, not a fan. Also not believable that a Sphinx could hold sunglasses because it doesn't have a nose. Right. <laughs> um, what are your thoughts on it? You know, I, it's okay. I, I have to admit, it didn't really stick out when I saw it in the record store because the, 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 the first thing that stands out to me about it is that it, like you can barely make out the Kiss logo because it's done like a little postage stamp. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not their their finest hour as far as that, but uh, I don't know. I kind of like it. Uh, it works with the title and stuff of that nature. Um, it, you you like the idea of maybe just using that back photo? Yeah, I mean maybe a better version of it or something like that. Uh, but you know, because it kind of showed the band more worn. Let's just call it street clothes or more closer to the revenge type look. Mm-hmm. Where it kind of to me it symbolizes more the sound of the album too, because it's more back to basics a little bit. I think so, but except for there, I mean, you got Eric Carr dressed like he's just off the set of Miami Vice playing a drug dealer. <laughs> I, um, I get it. Paul I was really it. starting to embrace the vest. That might have been the inspiration for me around this time. Ooh, and, I see. Uh, I don't know. The Bruce never looked good, no matter how he dressed. So he always kind of looked kind of like a nerd. Tucks his shirt in too much. He was listening to a lot of Queen's Rock at the time. You got to realize. <laughs> yeah. I um, I'm a fan of not having band photos on the front. I think. I don't know. Never. I mean, sometimes it works really good. I mean, it's their classic covers of the of the uh, of the '70s. You know, they're all on there, and, and it's usually some really cool artwork and stuff of that nature. But like, I don't care for the Dynasty cover that much. Um, Lick it up is pretty lame. Um, even a, what about Monster though? That that that's a good one though. Yeah, Monster. Yeah, to me, that's kind of what this back photo looks like. Monster. That should sure. have been the back album cover. Putting it on the front makes it look like one of those fake albums that you get at truck stops. You know what I mean? It would be like, you know, April Wine's The Best Of, and it's just some cheap fucking looking thing. That's what Monster looks like. And they use the what? Monster Energy Drink logo. <laughs> what, what, if, what if the album cover was that photo, but it's just them standing in front of the Sphinx? <laughs> the... <laughs> yeah, now we're talking. Well, do a I mean, come cover. on. That, that's what the tour was. Here's my question about the cover. One more thing, though. Do you think that the idea of putting a goddamn Sphinx on the stage came after the album came out or before? After. Me too. I, I, I can, think they're like, what are you going to do? It, hey, actually. 
Oh, you can. Okay, yeah. all right. Fair enough. Yeah, we got. We have to validate why we put a Sphinx with sunglasses on. And how come? No, how come no sunglasses on the tour? They did have them. Oh, they did. One of the f- things uh, that I bought that I've lost over the years that I really wish I would have at least bought a second pair because it was only five dollars. Mm. I bought a pair of Kiss uh, Hot in the Shade sunglasses. Um, somewhere along the line, I lost them. I, uh, part of the reason was they were my everyday sunglasses from that point on. But uh, anyway. <laughs> Those are your everyday. Which one are you gonna wear? Well, they were. They were. Well, you know what I mean. It's just like. uh, Does it it have the actual uh, the 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 logo on the sunglasses? No, they were just. They were basically those Blues Brothers style uh, glasses with just a little tiny Kiss logo on the side. So it was nice and subtle. Ah, nothing too subtle. uh, That's that. See that? I would expect the K and the I being on one lens. Yeah, if they did it now, they'd be fucking you know full print (laughs) over to lens and everything. That's what I mean. uh, Okay, uh, subtlety. But uh, yeah, um, and uh, one last kind of note of of uh, that I think is going to set up a lot what we talk about. Larry Mazur came in right after the record was done to become Kiss's new manager. Um, yeah, I have a bunch of comments from Larry, kind of to that apply to things that are going on at this time. Kind of interesting stuff. So sure, but um, it, it was an interesting move to do a, a fifteen song album in general and to. Yeah, fifteen was a lot, but I, you, I, you're really think about the albums that came out around this time. I mean, Hysteria was before this; that was twelve tracks. True. Um, Tesla was twelve. It was really because it was starting to become common leading up to Correct. this to to max out you know your cassettes and uh, and CD. Now they you know this kind of pushed it. You know, I, like like I said, fifteen. I didn't know. I don't think anybody was going over thirteen. But. Well, we had fifteen songs that we thought were great. And, and, and in general, with, with Kiss, even on their their best efforts, for the most part, there's always a couple stinkers, in my opinion, on an album. For the most part. Mm-hmm. So when you get fifteen, you know, math would serve that half of these would be stinkers. And I think that's the general consensus from the from the uh, the Kiss fandom. Um, let's let's tear the bandaid off this sucker and uh, and see what we got here. Um, oh, so we're yeah. like I said, we're gonna start off with side one. We're gonna do an a, a side A and side B thing here. Five songs on each side. We've both resequenced it for those uh, listening. That means we basically shuffled the songs around in the order we think makes sense. At least sequencing for- sequencing does matter, Poonie. Yeah, it really does. Um, you know, well, I, I'm surprised you feel that way, considering you basically live your life as a playlist. You know, it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, just put it on random, right? Yes, but all my playlists are sequenced. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right, fair enough. Well, what did you have? What's opening the, the, the loose cannon version of A Hot in the Shade? For me, when I sequence this, I'm not sequencing this just to be cute and be, man, if I just, this would blow people's mind by opening this, this album with this one. What is the best opening song? And one thing that, that no matter what complaints you have on certain Kiss albums, very few times do they pick the wrong opening track Correct. you could argue against. And this album is no different. Um, so I'm opening it up with Rise to It. Hmm. And interesting choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah. But no, there's nothing that needs to be changed here. The one thing I always thought was a bit odd was, and I'm not sure, again, and that, that might have hurt to you as, as a guitarist, the the choice to open the uh, is it steel guitar slide guitar what do you consider it it's slide but um it does say what he played um it just says slide but yeah to me that's a just kind of like um it's an acoustic guitar that he's playing but okay but to me it really reminded me of what came out a year earlier for whatever reason it reminded me of bad seamstress blues 
by Cinderella is the first mm-hmm. thing it was. And it doesn't really connect to the rest of the song. It is cool, but it's definitely unique and everything like that, too, for the, the whole Kiss canon or whatever to start off that way. Right. And it just starts with that, that, that sliding bass and then boom, and goes into pretty much a song that could be about motivating yourself to keep going and run an extra mile or getting a raging boner, whatever. <laughs> you know, it yeah. goes both ways. I dig it. Your thoughts? Well, I also tend to agree that um, Kiss has done a pretty good job in sequencing their records. Uh, I, I think, honestly, I probably wouldn't do much with this album if we weren't taking songs out. But once you know we took five tracks out, you kind of got to refigure how the album's going to begin and end. Uh, I do think it matters. Uh, I, I think album sequencing is is very big part of the how much pleasure you get out of listening to something you, you kind of know what's coming next it has a flow to it i too picked rise to it um it is the out of, out of the songs that we ha- were selecting with at least you know because it made the cut it's a great opener um it's it's an uplifting song about uh being able to get a boner at the appropriate time sure. um but not at the inappropriate time is kind of the message i took away from it but uh yeah you know the, the, i could live without the slide thing i think that just actually helps it work as an opener to be honest with you um but yeah the song kicks in and i don't they didn't do that on tour did they no idea i don't think so yeah i'm not sure if they even played rise to it the whole tour did they um i definitely saw them play it but uh and they don't change their set list up (laughs) (laughs) just to know if it got dropped um but yeah so so right out of the gate we both got rise to it as the opening track so nothing changes there i i just love the fact that it's an opening track and it actually has paul saying listen is not just a uh, green light what is it red light don't say no she says stop baby go 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 he's actually breaking <laughs> he's breaking this woman's will and by the second verse on this uh but i love the part the part that i love the most about this song is the fact that it takes that is that get up lights camera action part that bridge yeah that's, that's, next that's level. kick ass right I, after the solo I really like that. It's got a great solo by Bruce. But the the thing that's interesting about this is that with prepping for this episode is Bob, an unrock name, but Bob Halligan Jr. is one of the songwriters on this. And they use a lot, a big variety of songwriters in this, I think more than the normal. Um, and But to tell you more about Bob Halligan Jr., I am going to turn it over to professional Wikipedia reader, Chris Sinzak of Decibel Geek. As a songwriter, Halligan has contributed songs to two albums by heavy metal band Judas Priest, Take These Chains from 1982's Screaming for Vengeance and the single Some Heads Are Gonna Roll from 1984's Defenders of the Faith. Halligan also worked extensively with the hard rock heavy metal band Kicks, beginning in the mid-1980s when he co-wrote most of the songs on the band's third album, Midnight Dynamite. Incidentally, one of the most successful songs he has ever written is Kicks' near top ten hit, Don't Close Your Eyes, and my favorite Kiss song ever, Read My Body. God damn. Damn it. Yeah, just interesting. He writes two songs on that on this album. One we'll get to later, but but yeah, so Bob Halgan Jr., only time they've ever worked with him was this album. I wonder if that means these songs might have been skeletal or like they, they took a song he wrote 
and then just kind of reworked it for themselves, and then they gave him songwriting credit or something. I don't know. The fact that he doesn't really pop up anywhere kind of leads me to think that they didn't actually work together. But I honestly, well, I'm yeah. speculating. You know what I mean? It's, it's interesting. He, but his his kind of uh, songwriting credits are only in this little pocket of like five years during the sure. 80s for bands. Yeah. Um, just not a but, household uh, name. He's not Desmond Child, no. you know what I mean, or Holly Knight or nope. Diane Warren. Even He's not even a Jean Beauvert. <laughs> That's right. Uh, well done with the pronunciation, by the way. Thank you. It wasn't until podcast they could even say his name. It was so probably it's probably Bouvier. <laughs> oh, probably. Uh, but thanks to Kiss fans everywhere, it's now Bouvier. So out the gate, we got the same opening track, but track two, Rise to It, rings out, and it leads into what track, Baco? I took Prisoner of Love and slid it up into the number two spot. It's a Gene song, uh, co-wrote with uh, Bruce Kulick. And clocks in at three minutes fifty two seconds if you're counting at home. I I always kind of dug this tune, and I like the way the. Like he just doesn't have a lot of style, um, and and he's a really solid guitar player. But you know, when you think about the the great players of the '80s, you know George Lynch, um, Jakey Lee, Eddie Van Halen, even like um, the guy from Rat, uh, D Martini, they all have a very distinct sound. That when when you hear them, they sound like them. And Bruce Kulick just sounds different every damn record, and it kind of sounds I don't know a little plasticky to me. He's don't get me wrong, he's an amazing fucking player. Um, he can do almost anything, but a lot of guys that are like that, they just, you know, there's a reason that he was able to go from meatloaf to Michael Bolton to kiss without a, without a hitch. How dare you? Anyway, back to the song here. Um, apparently Bruce had the, 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 the skeleton of this thing. It was, it was going to actually open up more like domino where he's plucking the strings, you know? And uh, Gene sure. decided to turn it into a shuffle. I love it, but Bruce apparently doesn't really care for that change. Um, and, and as we get along here, we're going to find out Bruce doesn't care for this record that much. I don't know if you had the same song at number two. If not, what are your thoughts? And then we'll get into what your number two was. Yeah, no, I don't have Prisoner of Love as number two. Uh, but this song, not that it sounds just like it, but kind of the the chord progression or main riff or whatever kind of gives me gives me a kind of a cold gin mm. vibe. Okay. That kind of just like that the way it's the way it's played and this one actually uh when you said about bruce i do agree about you know he's he, he basically did what he was told as far as the the tone i do think there is some maybe uniformity between this and and revenge as far as like maybe his own sound a little bit but with that said the guitar solo on this is one of my favorite by him on this album 
where it just it just rips and and if if it didn't have that in it i'm not sure that i would like it, it the song as a whole as much but uh yeah this is this is a great just straight up rocker and i i have to say that's not my number two but that is a, a pretty solid position that was one of my uh one of my places for number two Okay. What did you have at number two? Yeah, man. At this point, still, I haven't changed anything. I think it's it's mm. good as is. And that is, we go right into Betrayed, mm. which, my God, this is basically 1989 Deuce. It is just oh. straight on, you know, uh, it is the, the the drums, just the relentless riff going through the whole thing. We've got a great solo, you know, uh, uh Gene drops an F-bomb. You pay your taxes. You pay the rent till you haven't got a cent. Why has TurboTax not picked this up? Is, is <laughs> like a, a song that they play on their commercials. And it, it the, continues the, um, uh, the tradition of Gene just kind of using like bumper sticker catchphrases as lyrics. You know, uh, it's a law of the jungle. If you got the hunger, what doesn't kill you will make you stronger. Hey. Love it. You, you see a rising star with the songwriter of Tommy Thayer being a co-writer. Gene used You've to pick got... Paul up at the therapist office, and he would just look at the signs on the wall and then take him home and write use them as lyrics. You know what? Somehow these bumper stickers all blend into some uh, just a glorious song for me. You got your backs against the wall, yeah. nobody gives a fuck. I wish this song, I think if this song, and this goes to a lot of the songs on this album, was produced better, they would be loved more. But I just think this song has, is the first attitude I've heard from Gene from 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 probably since Lick It Up. That kind of just like, like fuck you. I love the vibe of this song. It's my number two. It's a great one-two punch. What say you, Baco? Well, it was co-written by Tommy Thayer, who at the time was uh, working as Gene and Paul's groundskeeper. Um, of course. But uh, yeah, he took a little you know break from the sun, kind of... Wiped off uh-huh. the brow, came in and co-wrote this uh, pile of shit. Yeah, this song didn't even make my 10. So uh, wow. this is just, I don't know, a steaming heap of, nah. I, I just, this is a, a, a quick skip on the on the CD player, man. It's just it, nothing. It, I can't believe you, you fucking compared this to Deuce. Honest to God. It's got the that. same vibe. Same vibe. Uh, I'm not saying yeah, it's, it's Deuce. Got, it's got that drum beat, but it has no vibe. I mean, this if anything, this song lacks vibe. Now, wow. uh, getting to the production, though, you know, you, you've you definitely heard that there's some of these songs are actually, you know, just worked up demos. Yep. That uh, they they recorded with a drum machine. I, have you ever found out specifically which tracks? Because in in prepping for this, all I could find is that they didn't actually use a regular drum kit for the songs they didn't play drums on. They used like um like a like a a synth a synthesizer a synth kit. You know those those pads. Right. And I love the explanation. I, I found it in two different yeah. places because the studio didn't have a drum set. Well, does Eric have one? <laughs> Uh, I mean, it... I don't get that either, and I don't get the whole synth thing thing. Like, like I hear it in. I think "Love's a Slap in the Face" is definitely a. That's the only one that dr- I could find that, that, that maybe maybe "Read My Body" is. I'm not sure. Yeah, but, but that the, one the, definitely the, sounds like it. it. Definitely sounds like it, but but how can it just be like the synth thing for a lot of the other songs? I don't hear that until julian gill comes out with a hot in the shade uh book Mm. (laughs) i'm not gonna completely believe all those those Uh, late summer i'm hearing (laughs) oh really good excellent how has he not already done it that's true oh man but uh yeah this uh back to betrayed it's uh i i I got cut from mine so wow i think it's just your hate of tommy thayer you didn't like it
another co-wrote that might be one of the my favorite songs on the record. So suck that loose. Spoiler for you. Well, that brings us to track three on side one. Uh, what did you have here, man? Uh, can I guess? <laughs> <laughs> you can ask. Well, uh, you know what? I'll, I'll actually answer your question with a question, if that's okay. Yeah. Do you know why the King of Hearts has to hide his heart? What? Why? Because uh, he has a heart of chrome. <laughs> Eat your heart up, baby. Uh, I, there's a lot of there's believe, a lot of heart. I can't believe I laughed at that. I, I I just lost a bunch of credibility with people. So. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> all right. The answer to your question is hide your heart. Lazy Man hasn't changed a thing, but also it's the one, two, three punch. I think that Kiss is great with their third song in position a lot of times too. Yeah, um, I could go into a whole thing about track threes on albums too, but it's, I think it's a it's a perfect track three and probably my second favorite uh, song on the album overall. I think it's a great song and um, also co-writers in this song some facts you got desmond child paul and holly knight and if you want to hear more information about how this song was written check out the hustle podcast mm. with john lambro uh, great interview with her there as well as rock solid with pat francis desmond according to holly knight Des- desmond and paul like conference called her back in the day yeah just or, or they're the, at the studio and they're like hey you know do is it okay? Do you want songwriting credit on this or something like that? Because they they had redone something on it, but it was basically per her. She had written the song almost completely. And and I'm going to hand it over to you because you probably know Fox about this. This song mystified me before we even get into the Kiss version of what happened to it and how many artists cover it and the fact that it was an Aces album. Do you under, Can you explain a little bit of that? Because I'm still a bit confused on how all these versions came out at the same time. These songs are kind of like submitted for people to 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 work on. You know, when you uh, when a band gets together to do a record, a lot of times they 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 actually take in. You know, I mean, I, I, if you recall, Bryn from Flip talked about submitting a, a song to Kiss called Freak. Right. Um, so there are all these songwriters out there that are looking for people to pick up a, a track or something like that. So yeah. How Ace of all people ended up doing that's kind of the the weird thing to me. It's almost like they found out Ace did it, so they did it too. Uh, that's how it feels, you know what I mean? Because you know how fucking who came up first though? Those albums. Ace came was out just almost... a little first uh, earlier, I think. Really? Wait, no, 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 okay. no. Ace was just shortly after, I think. That's what I thought. Okay. Um, but yeah, they both came out, you know, in fall of '89. But yeah, how Molly Hatchet and uh, who are the other ones? Uh, Robin was it Bobby Beck. Tyler. Yeah, too? and if you go back and listen to my interview with uh, Craig Smith, I do a mashup of all the versions.
That's why I figured you knew more about it. Yep. But uh, yeah, it's it is weird. You know what other song that that um, had that happen a lot was that song "Back on the Streets," the Vinnie Vincent song. Uh, a lot of people covered that, including Ace. And I'm like, I don't care for the song that much, but that's not really the point. Um, it does seem odd that so many people, especially in the same amount of time, just I, that's what I mean. Like, I can't think of another song out there that it, in history that. Everybody came out with their version, like they were trying to run a race to put it out all at the same time. And 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 oddly, and I think it's a fantastic song. Yep. But oddly, none of them really did that well. You know what I mean? Like I don't think that charted overall. I, don't, I think Kisses probably was the highest charting version of all of them. Yeah, I would um, say theirs is the best too. Um, yeah, I, I do too. I don't think it works with Ace or anything like that. But but Ace's is the worst one. <laughs> yeah, I think I think. Uh-huh, you're right. uh-huh. No. Your thoughts on the song? Well, I also had it coming in in the third slot. I left it right where it was. Perfect place. Um, according to Desmond Child, this song was actually originally called Bite Down Hard. Um, so I'm <laughs> like, you gotta in? bite down hard. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. I, I absolutely love this song. I, I think it, it might be my, I don't know, it's definitely my top two or three as far as tracks on here. Uh, I, I do think it's, um, I don't know, it, it, you always like the story songs. So this is, you know, it tells the story of, uh, you know, a girl cheating on her boyfriend who happens to have violent tendencies. And uh, uh, doesn't somebody end up dying in the end? <laughs> well, I'm not sure if you know, this is actually the prequel to Detroit Rock City. Then he got drunk and, and crashed on the car in a car on the way to a concert. Oh, I thought it was uh, more of a modern day Romeo and Juliet. Oh, it absolutely is. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but I, I like your version, too. Anyway, so, sure. that yeah, that gets us up to track three on side one. I have to say that when I first heard this on the radio, um, there was something that it goes through this whole album is there's something about the guitar tone. I'm just going to call it flat mm. or something like that about this album. It's just it doesn't sound like any Kiss album before it or after. And it's kind of this. Is that maybe because the demo quality or something in that area? Odd, it, it is just the yeah. production. It's just uh, not EQ'd very sharp. I actually would say the guitar tone on Asylum uh, is somewhat similar in that comparison. You're right. So. I, I have to agree about that. Actually, it's that kind of just like uh, maybe just not bait. Just mixed, like th- it's it's thin. Is that a better word? Thin. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it, it's okay. got a lot of modulation on it. I don't. Know. It just it doesn't feel like it's really EQ'd very good. I don't, it, but you know, that's kind of a, a, a dummy's version of it. I just, I, I'm sure the studio had the capability of making it sharper sounding based on the re- what the record sounds like, the drums and everything. But um, maybe they just had shitty mics. <laughs> Actually, I think it's it's because. Um, 
the the studio didn't have guitars there, and those were the only <laughs> guitars they could use. Yeah. Yeah, this is all recorded on Keytar. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's the problem. We have Keytars and we have fake drum kits. That's all we got at this place, the uh, Fortress. That's all we could afford was Keytars and fake drum kits. And there's literally no solution to God change either one of those. <laughs> I, I, well, this is what we got. We can't bring our own stuff in. I really hope that's true, though, that, like, well, we can't use real drums because they don't have them here. <laughs> like, well, go get them. Uh, nope. nope. <laughs> it won't say it's against the union won't allow it <laughs> the doors are really skinny you, can't, <laughs> That's right. you maybe get a, a piccolo snare and a and, and a couple cymbals through that's about it I mean, yeah, gene, gene, gene gonna... has to record in the parking lot he's too fat to fit through the doors all right man so we both have hide your heart in position number three what do you have is your fourth track baco uh i have the monster ballad forever Coming up to the coveted number four spot, uh, just you know all, that we get all your singles on side one. That makes you know Michael Wagner happy, um, and uh, <laughs> it's just kind of a nice spot for it. You know what I mean? It's just a, a little break, and you know. I gotta tell you what I'm feeling inside. I could lie to myself, but it's true. There's no denying when I look in your eyes Girl, I'm out of my head over you And I lived so long believing all of this crime But everything about you is telling me this time It's forever This time I know it's had no doubt in my mind the song um i think as far as a ballad goes anyway this is one of their better ones obviously i think i like uh, every time i look at you a little bit better than this just as a kind of a comparison close to this but this is better than reason to live um and yeah i'm a little surprised that this didn't push more copies of the record because it was a huge hit and i really like this video too i i think all the videos on this uh, for this record are pretty cool but this one, I kind of like that kind of black and white with splashes of color on it. And right, right. in the video, Eric Carr is playing a full drum set. Um, so I Ooh. apparently they, they didn't shoot it where they recorded it. But yeah, it's just kind of a laid back where they're just kind of sitting around on, uh, I think Paul's standing, but Bruce and uh, Gene are on, on stools. And I don't know. Yeah. It's just kind of a nice video for the time. It's, it's well shot and edited, all that good stuff. This one, like I said, I think we touched on it at the beginning. Uh, this uh, peaked at number eight, which is pretty good for Kiss. Uh, and, you know, it, uh, typically I would go to a Kiss concert with Wilson and maybe one or two other guys. I went with ten people to this concert, and it was largely because of the this song, I think. I don't think I would have had that many friends interested is what I mean. No, I hear you. And I should say this is, you know, co-written by Michael Boat. Bolton, a little connection from uh, Bruce Kulick's past and Blackjack mm-hmm. is kind of the, how the history um, is told. But this is one of the ballads from the 80s that I think stands up. I never had an issue with the song. As far as just a, a, a well-written ballad and and a great solo from Bruce being an acoustic too, which I thought was good versus, you know, a lot of times back in the day you'd have this, you know, 
you'd have a power band and all of a sudden they would say like, all right, let's, we got to man it up here and just have this ripping crazy ass guitar solo in the middle of like an acoustic type, uh, uh, ballad. So I did like that part of it too. Um, but this goes to the whole thing also where why do you shy away from the hits? i never understand this. This should have, I don't think ever really left their set list. And, and, and you know what I mean? Because it was, mm. it, what I mean by that is that if they're talking about for the casual fans and we've debated this back and forth, then, then why do you not play one of your top, only top 10 hits? I get the fact that, yeah, it probably looks goofy with the makeup, but even before that, it was just kind of like, they just kind of like dropped it. So I don't want to hear it's Paul just a mystery. this now. <laughs> I get that. Well, you don't want to Paul to sing anything right now for the most part. Right. But, but I'm just saying in general, I just think it's 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 funny how they shy away from their I get I get what your point kiss. is. I've always I think when they put the makeup back on and and I can tell you there's other people like Larry Mazer who agree with me. That is basically you're you're resetting and things are that's what you do. Like, you know, when when Black Sabbath brought Ozzy back, they weren't playing Dio hits. I it's a little different because you still have the singers in the band, but to me there's just something about the imagery of the makeup that makes those eighties songs it's just difficult for me. It's just I don't know, it's like uncomfortable when they play anything. Um so but that's more of a personal thing. I think you at your point, if they're going to do it, which they do, I don't see why this is one that they're they're not getting because it was a monster hit. Um, you can even make that argument for reason to live, honestly. Yeah, I mean, you know what's less goofy is is this versus Beth in the makeup. I get the fact that it's from different eras. I'm just saying that Beth is so goofy live and stuff like that. This I is think Beth is song. stupid live, uh, especially right. as I mean. an encore. But yeah, yeah. Um, Paul had some interesting things to say about this song uh, in his book. Funny thing about Forever, because it was somewhat uncharacteristic for Kiss, people pegged it as a Michael Bolton song since he was co-credited as songwriter. Surely I couldn't have written it. In fact, after an all-too-brief initial writing session at the Sunset Marquee, Michael had so little to do with it that once it became a hit, he asked the Kiss office to fax him over a copy of the lyrics. Only then did he start performing the song in concert and introducing it as a song he wrote for Kiss. When our record label first heard Forever, it was the first time in a decade that an A&R man at our label actually weighed in with an opinion on one of our songs. He sat me down in his office and said I needed to re-edit it so it faded out on the chorus. That was Song Arranging 101, and even though it could be effective in some cases, it wasn't right for that song. The ending was one of the qualities that made Forever unique. This desk expert pushed his opinion relentlessly and with a tone that made it seem like more of a directive than a suggestion. I'd had enough. I was doing this before you were in grade school, I told him. I was at this label before you were here, and I'll be here after you're gone. So thanks, but no thanks. That was the end of the meeting. Forever reached number eight on the Billboard Singles Chart, giving us our first top ten single in more than a decade. Not long after, that record company expert was replaced with the next one. It's a solid, well-written song, uh, but it, it did, I'm sure, take a lot of people... Uh, have them take a back step like whoa 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 who is this you know playing this kind of you know if if you're a, a long time Kiss fan did you also have Forever at number four what do you got here my first side is a concept album it's a concept album about the street you're angry about your taxes after you've got a boner you've, you're hiding your heart and you know what the street giveth and the street taketh away man look out look out Take a stand So you need that human hand Where 
that's my number four. You go right. Two Street, a Gene and a Paul Street song, man. Hmm. And also, this is a Tommy Thayer heavy side. Second <laughs> co-write by Tommy Thayer. And I've heard the knocks on this song here and there that it's like Suffragette City, you know, David Bowie and stuff mm-hmm. like that. The Hey Man. Can you really brand a Hey Man? I mean, is that is that that? I get there's a lot of similarity there, but this this I'll even say it right now. Here's a mind bomb. Better than Suffragette City. What do you think of that, people? <laughs> I've definitely listened to it more than Suffragette City, but I think I like Suffragette City a little bit better. I think... Oh, suffer, Suffragette, not Suffragette. 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 Yeah. Whatever. See? That's another reason it's not. It's, it's a better song. You pronounce it better. Yeah, see, it is... Well, it's, it's, it's a bit of a tongue twister. The street giveth and the street taketh away. It's got F was this the, in it. Was this... Yeah. Was this the B-side of Hide Your Heart? It was the B-side uh, for one of the singles. You know, I don't know. I don't have that in front of me. I'm going with it. Nobody that cares about that shit. Well, excuse, I'm saying if it was the B-side, that's the whole thing. This is the Gene's version and Paul's version. There's a lot of uh, synchronicity with some other songwriting on this song. That's all I got to tell you on this album, I mean. I do think the um, the Bowie thing was intentional. I, and I, and so I, I believe Gene has actually said it as much. So, in other words, you know, it wasn't like he was trying to, you know, slip something past the the people. You know what I mean? I, I think it was um, maybe homage is too strong a term, but I think he deliberately and openly was like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of lifting that little thing there. Um, I, yeah, it's not worth a songwriting credit, but, uh, you know, it is kind of a nod to it. This might be my favorite track on the on the record. It depends on the mood, nice. but but I, I fucking love it. I, I've heard some people kind of shit on it, and I don't get it. This is just a killer fucking tune. And even that, like, little uh, uh, acoustic break in the middle where it goes, giant chorus just balls up right after that. It's just great. It's a fun tune. It, it, it rolls good. It, it, it It's... It stands up despite Tommy Thayer's involvement, because of course, uh, I I have to hate everything that he touches. Right, the chorus, mm-hmm. infectious as hell. I, that goes through my head. But going back to the whole production thing one more time is a lot of the songs on Hot in the Shade are actually better written than Revenge. And going back to this, my point is the production can take away overall from your enjoyment of the album, uh, of an album for people. As as much as I would, I'll I'll concede this album probably could have used a producer. Uh, and it would have sounded better. I don't think the production of this thing is just total shit, though. I don't think the the songs would have been drastically up or down on people's opinion if, like, Ezrin or Nevison or Michael James Jackson would have came in and done it. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't think it would have been that much of a stamp, to be honest with you. I will counter that argument in saying that it's because it's it's too bloated. The production's not good, but I'll tell you what, for demos... A producer eh, would have stripped this fucker down to 10 tracks. <laughs> that's right. That's what we're doing right here. And, th- and that's, that the- would have been the biggest help. All right. All right. Listen. Again, demos, eh, not that bad. I'll flat out <laughs> say this, man, because uh, to, to most people, if they didn't, weren't told they were demos, they wouldn't go, this sounds like a demo. I'm sorry. I've heard Kiss demos. This is a much fucking shinier package than the average demo that they, they that is out there. So I think that because that's been out there so long, everybody feels like they're an expert on like, oh, well, yeah, it's these are just demos. Well... Does forever sound like a fucking demo to you? Does hide your heart sound like a demo? Because there's a lot of shit going on in those songs, right? And that's what I think too. Is I think that some of them that the production is uh, to my ears a little different per song. Yeah, too. you know what I mean. Well, yeah, like, they work put... separately. <laughs> you know? Well, I'm saying like as far as the the effort they put forth on it, like I think forever does sound like a fully produced song versus it. I think they, I think they took more time on the singles as far as mixing and stuff. Probably. You know? 
Yeah, they they, yeah. they knew which ones are going to be put out there. So, right, right. All right, with okay. that, let's close out side one before we flip the cassette or turn the platter. Uh, by the way, can I say something on the vinyl on this one? Oh, please. Um, first of all, the original issue of this. I mean, it. You can. I mean, the volume is so fucking low because they had to squeeze these, you know, grooves together so tight to fit all fucking fifteen tracks on one vinyl. Um, right. Well, they just recently. Um, uh, reissued it. I think it was an orange one. You know, like uh, first of all, all those Kiss vinyl reissues are kind of cool. But do you have any fucking idea what you're doing? You're just like, hey, let's do this one. <laughs> it's hey, this this one's turning thirty. Let's do an orange fucking hot in the shade or whatever. You know what I mean? But again, you think, well, now you're gonna do it, repress it on vinyl, do it right, put it on two fucking records. Nope. So really, yeah. they still did that. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. Like, fucking a man. I really wish um somebody because I know this is more of a universal music thing, and Gene and Paul are probably not involved, but maybe they should try to find a way to be involved. Uh, because I I think um I think it'd be really cool if they went back and did some of these more deluxe kind of gatefold packages on some of these. Do them on do this one on on two pieces on on two uh two discs instead of you know one to make it actually sound decent on vinyl oh i digress we're, we're wrapping up side one what do you got yeah. at uh for the last track on side one the audiophile myself in, in going the direction of vinyl a lot a lot of the sequencing back in the day used to be putting like a lighter song is the last song on the side because of the limits of the grooves man hmm. so i am selecting forever i think it's a nice play out song to side one and also it's going to sound better in that position too on the vinyl so i'm doing this for you i'm doing this for you craig smith just get ready to pick up that needle it's not going to return to its home you motherfucker my my fifth track was a loves a slap in the face the cassette era not worried about the the vinyl grooves i think in hindsight gene's music holds up a lot better than he gets you know like he gets ripped a lot of bit for basically checking out but uh i think this is a killer tune it holds up better than a lot of paul stuff i don't know man i just like i love that nah 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 it's just kind of sleazy and it's just great don't forget the don't forget the nah 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 I never thought it would hurt so good. No, no. Yeah. uh, And an old friend comes back into the picture in Vinnie Poncia. 
Uh, just a weird name to see in 1989, you know, for he produced Peter's record and then to, they brought him on to produce Dynasty and Unmasked to kind of, I don't know, polarizing Kiss records. So the idea that they're working with Vinny again, um, kind of weird, but uh, he gets a bunch of co-writes on here. He does, yeah. Like almost like the second half of the album, he starts blowing up with his name. Right on. Now, this is what I call, what I love uh, is when you get clean Gene. I don't think Gene cared about my solo tour at all. It's something about the vocal on here mm-hmm. that just shows, yeah, I think I think it's very, uh, I don't, maybe the wrong, it's wrong, wrong, but maybe soulful, or there's something about, this was the part too that I realized that even if the songs weren't great, that that I just love Gene and Paul's voice, like an, yeah. on anything for the most part. You know what I mean? How they harmonize, yep. how they do that. Like you can you can the whole the whole cliche about re, uh, singing the phone book, or whatever. I'm like I'm like yes, it's different. Yes, there's a drum machine, which by the way also sounds better at the end and of a vinyl record too when you have a drum machine. Yes, the last track <laughs> for the grooves. But but no, I, but I do think that the song is also amusing because he doesn't commit. Is love a slap in the face, or is it a ball and chain? Well, it was originally titled "Love's a, a Mushroom Stamp on the Forehead." <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I, that's interesting. That's, that's different from my notes for the original from the original title. Um, uh, Vinny changed mine it. Here. Mine, mine, mine was actually "Love's Chlamydia in June." Mm, okay, "Love's a Lollipop." Love can be a lot of different things, man. Uh, Jesus Christer says, "Love is a lie." Oh, see, yeah. So it's 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 it, this one is actually this song could have just been called debatable. <laughs> it, for sequencing, it's an interesting song because where do you put it? You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. No. I as think, far as uh, that, it, it, I've put it in the perfect spot. Track five. <laughs> okay, but, but with that too is that I, I do have to say is that the thing I do respect about this album too is the fact that it has a lot of different styles on it, which I think sometimes mm. makes makes the average Kiss. Uh, was just called Lunkhead. His their minds explode. We know you're talking about Mankini. My eraser's well worn because I make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> Which is not just one thing. Like if there's actually uh, a keyboard or a different pace or some kind of like tempo, then people's like, man, this ain't this ain't Kiss, man. Gotta this, have it, a driving like, beat, you know. Play just a step behind, crank the guitars. Yeah, that's all, that's I all I you need. My eraser's well worn because I make a lot of mistakes. When you have a song that's not exactly the same tempo as when you're chewing chips it can throw you off yeah yes right for an album i think this song has this album has a lot of variety as far as styles on it for a kiss album definitely yeah i mean it fucking opens up with slide guitar for crying out loud so i'm saying man that was progressive before you walk up to your turntable let let the needle lay in that groove for a little bit there Um, we are going to coke. We're going to talk about the tour. Um, uh, spoiler alert. This might be my favorite. This is definitely my favorite, uh, n- uh non-makeup tour. Uh, okay. It's not famous for a lot of other things, but tonight is the very first night of Kisses Hot in the Shade Tour. That describes the uh, big sphinx behind me. No, we're not in Egypt. We're in Lubbock, Texas, of course. And uh, tonight we're going to be seeing part of Kiss playing live. We're going to be speaking to Kiss. Kind of be honest with you. I mean... I'm sitting here on Kiss's stage right now. I mean, forever, obviously, everybody was like a big Kiss fan, and I'm, I'm sitting here on Kiss's stage. It must be the Headbangers Ball. I'm Ricky Rackman. Welcome back to the Headbangers Ball. I'm here with Bruce, Gene, and Paul from, of course, Kiss. We're in Lubbock, Texas, 
And uh, this is your first show of the tour, right? Yeah, we're about to start, in fact, in a couple of hours. That's right. <laughs> I love that voice. I that's, love that. That's, that's the, the voice of sincerity. That's, yes. the, that's the voice of, we're going to kick your butt. And you're getting uh, excited? Oh, yeah, we're having, look at this stage. Right, look in case stuff. you people can't see it, this is not a giant chimpanzee. This is a sphinx. Its name is Leon. It talks. It has lasers coming out of its mouth. It's going to even tell you that coming up, there's Faith No More, Cinderella. Why don't we uh, break, in fact, and let's see one of ours. Um, from the set list to the stage, uh, and just kind of a, almost like a rebirth for these guys. Did you get a chance to see this one? Just blow through the set list because this is one that I missed and was so pissed off that I did miss it. So, well, okay. Before I run down it, I'll tell you: Betrayed was played two times, and Little Caesar was played once, and Under the Gun was uh, hung in there for a little bit, but eventually got replaced by I Was Made for Loving You. I'm pretty sure I saw Under the Gun the first time I saw him. I Was Made for Loving You, but honestly, it was so long ago. I'd, I'd have to look up the specific shows to confirm that. But here's the set list. The, 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 for the most part, this is what people saw. Love, they opened up with I Stole Your Love. Blew me away. Um, they hadn't played that song in a long time. And man, just seeing Paul with a Les Paul walk out and go. And, and for you, if you internet kids, you know, you didn't know what the fuck the band was going to play back in the day. Correct. Right? Yeah. You, you could not find And, and some of us can still uh, just not look uh, <laughs> and, and show up. But uh, uh, I like how you say internet kids because it's just you. <laughs> what am I going to see tonight? Uh, all right. Let me hammer through this. I Stole Your Love, Please. Deuce, Heaven's on Fire, Crazy Nights, uh, Black Diamond, Shout It Out Loud, Strutter, Calling Dr. Love, I Was Made for Loving You, Rise to It, Fits Like a Glove, Hide Your Heart, Lick It Up, God of Thunder, Forever, Cold Gin, Tears Are Falling, I Love It Loud, Love Gun, Detroit Rock City, I Want You, and it closed out with, of course, Rock and Roll All Night. Um, yeah, and, and this is like also they didn't play, um, or Gene didn't blow fire on this tour, and the logo was not prominent for the entire show, which was kind of a, a change for Kiss. But then there's that part where the Sphinx falls apart. Right, but that's at the end, you know, or, you know. Then it it rises from the ashes or whatever like that. I thought that was a cool effect. Um, I do, correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I've seen, I love the set list. I do think it's odd that they do Black Diamond without the the big breakdown part, and it's way up in the set. That was was unique. It just didn't work for me overall. Yeah, I would would slide that down, but whatever. I mean, there's so much. I mean, they hit so much of their deep catalog. Plus, they, they hit... You know the two-hour mark when they were doing basically ninety, eighty-five minute, ninety-minute shows for the last you know two, few, three or four tours up to this. I mean, bringing out God of Thunder for the first time, and I mean since the early eighties, um, which is super odd. Which is super odd that he didn't. This is the time that he chose not to breathe, breathe fire. Yeah, I mean, I know it's usually this, but he did the spit. He didn't do spitting blood either ever during the eighties, right? No, never did the spitting blood, but he did the. He kept blowing fire. Um, I'm saying that would have been a song they could... Right. Anyway, it's just odd that they took that effect away. But, the, I mean, anything you want to talk about from the production, from the... the, the I guess it was it was one of the first times they dropped the... You wanted the best, you got the best. I don't think they did that in Revenge either. Hmm. But, okay. But, I, you know, but they just came out to the drone and right. then walked out to the lasers, right? I, I'll tell you that, because uh, I love taking cheap shots at Paul over their, their set list... Uh, um, mantra nowadays. This is a fairly deep set list with a lot of songs that your casual fan wouldn't know. And I went with at least six people that were at best casual fans. They knew forever. They were there for forever, but they may have known like Lick It Up and Heaven's on Fire, but they weren't deep. And Rock and Roll Night, of course. 
Right. They fucking, I, the, this was a, the both shows I went to were damn near capacity, if not sold out. And uh, the crowd at all of them loved it. And it wasn't because uh, Winger and Faster Pussycat and were opening, uh, and Slaughter, I think, did the whole tour. Um, as the first, this was like their first real thing going out there. Um, some of the other opening acts right. were uh, Little Caesar and uh, Vixen. I didn't really think about it too much until you mentioned it, but this did start late. Now they did their first date was March 11th, but they really only did three shows between March and April. The tour really fired up May 4th, so that's what. But the album came out. We should say the album again to revisit. Yeah, it. It October, like October something, but previous. Yeah, weird. So what's that? Six, seven months. Yeah. Yeah. So just a, I mean that was the whole thing of you have a tour to support the album. So I just found it was odd that they didn't do a fall tour. Um and I couldn't said, find anything that explained why, what that was. Right. Uh, um Paul got into it's, a car accident and none of the bandmates called him, by the way, but that was in the middle of the tour. We had to cancel the next few shows, yet nobody from the band called me. When I returned to the tour I woke up every day unable to turn my head or bend down. I still had such bad back spasms that I had to have a physical therapist loosen me up before each show. Even so, nobody from the band ever asked what had happened. Nobody ever asked how I was feeling. Nobody ever mentioned it at all. I was in a car crash, for God's sakes. You're my bandmates. Um, they, they had to postpone three shows because of that. Uh, now, one thing that I did find was funny. Hold on, let me pull this up here. On August 26th, they were performing at uh, some city called Salina, Kansas. So that's got to be the size of Rochester. you know. And this was a right. fucking giant show, right? Anyway, they blew out the power supply uh, um, outside the building. The transformer blew up. Uh, Paul went on a radio show shortly after and promised to return to Salina to make up for the shortened show. Um, they, they, they played it on air. Despite that, Kiss has never been back to Salina. <laughs> so you're telling me that that lost city is still lost yeah it must be oh uh, and they did a co-headlining show with uh white snake at some event up in toronto and apparently um david coverdale was a little bitch and wouldn't let kiss use their their full stage um huh. and according to reports uh after Kiss played, quite a bit of the people left, <laughs> and White Snake didn't have a full crowd. Which I want to just believe it's true. I don't care. Fuck, fuck White Snake. Yeah, corporate yeah. rock. Well, this is when the rumors are too that they tried to get together with Ace again, or there are some kind of efforts of it. He was, it was offered the opening slot, and he turned it down. Okay. Okay, but also maybe a reun- there's just rumors that there's maybe efforts of trying to reunite and things like that. Who knows? Yeah, uh, I, I think it's somewhat established that they were they were starting to have conversations about it. I don't think anything got any close to official, but they were going right. to do it with Eric on drums. Um, Correct. And uh, but then Eric got sick, and they just you know the the rest is kind of what it was because of that, which is too bad, man. Um, uh, if you could have cleaned Ace up in '89, because you know I saw Ace and you know a bunch of times between like '92 and '95 before the reunion tour, and as fucking drunk as he might show up, he fucking killed it. Um, and I thought he was great on that first tour with uh, on the reunion. So yeah, just seeing him play with Eric Carr might have been a might have been a lot of fun. But but kind of where I was going with that too was the fact that they, I think they finally. One of the reasons they started digging deep, like you're talking about, is they they weren't trying to hammer those '80s album tracks down people's throats sure. anymore. They're, they're they're they finally said, okay, we're going to harken back to to our roots finally, and they were kind of embracing that. Versus they were kind of stepping away from that a lot for the most part for their '80s set lists, and they 
added, you know, they went from like a 90 minute show to two hours. So I just think that this, the thing that's hot in the shade period is great as it was kind of like the, like I said, that, that made them go to Bob Ezrin too and do the whole Bill and Ted and the, and we're getting beyond hot in the shade, but I'm saying this is just a great period, I think, for them of just embracing more of their past. Yeah, it, it seemed like it. And yeah, I think they still played the same 80s tracks though. I mean, they, they really didn't drop anything. They just added a bunch of old tunes. Um, they also looked a lot cooler than they had in a while. Um, Correct. Uh, Crazy Nights was kind of a step in the right direction, but that was a, a, an abysmal tour. And obviously Asylum was, was the peak of God for them guys. Godiness is what I mean, not God. Um, right. But, yeah, they, they, they back to the leather pants and just kind of keeping it streamlined. Gene, yeah. Gene had that right. cool base with the with the makeup design on it, although I think he had that on yep. Crazy Nights too. But Yeah, they're just wearing, like, uh, sneakers and stuff like that. They, they, they zipped around a lot. You know, yeah. they had a lot of energy and, and shit like that. And uh, yeah, man. So body glove, I wish I, cut at the midriff T-shirt. <laughs> was, was, that was body glove in this? Or that no, was I'm going nights. back to crazy nights. Now, like I said, crazy nights was kind of a step in the right direction. But there's no sleeves. I mean, uh, Paul Stanley's never been a fan of sleeves, but he went from jerseys to vests between that transition. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. He had the Paisley vest. Uh, Paul rocked pretty much most of this tour, I believe. I wonder That's how right. many he had. Like, yeah, it's, you just see his wardrobe rolling case. You open it up. It's this fucking Paisley vest. He was really <laughs> inspired this. by the Traveling Wilburys. There you go, He's man. like, you know what? That, that, that could work for me. Just lose the shirt. <laughs> Any more thoughts on the tour? Um, no, I just it's one that I, I, that I definitely um, go ahead. I wanted to ask you: Did you? A lot of people think the Sphinx is stupid. I thought it was cool as hell. Even that dumb, like uh, motorized mouth opening, singing the middle part of God of Thunder. No <laughs> uh, <laughs> flapping that. No, I listen. I'm I'm a big uh, sucker for for props, be it uh, like Iron Maiden sets. I like I like I like uh, sets with depth. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that kind of thing. And, and also, it's almost like. <laughs> I kind of joke around with this, but I think that they they came up with that set design just to validate why the fuck they put a sphinx on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what La- see Larry Mazer came in at that time, and he was very instrumental in like we should put the sphinx on the stage, we should do yeah. a big big set, that kind of deal. It's excellent. That's why I like that and the revenge set a lot, just because there's a lot of stuff in the background. But uh, a fan. The only thing I was pissed off about is the sphinx didn't give me a finger at the end. When <laughs> That's for you, Craig Smith. Yeah. You motherfucker.
Slap in the face, going, but but going but going forward, it's is substituting love for dick. <laughs> no, um, let me think. Uh, Rock's not dead, but uh, it'll be around forever. 